listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 161. We've got a medley for you in this episode. We're going to the tarmac to look at a labor struggle that is going on across the nation and around the world to seek fair wages and better working conditions for airport workers. We'll also take a look at what's going on in the world of worker-owned cooperatives to see what happens when workers control the workplace. But first, the news. Whether you're a shopper, a business owner, or a worker, Amazon is basically the embodiment of everything big and scary about our digital future today. The company controls such a massive portion of global commerce, it seems like way too much power for any one corporate entity to wield ethically and fairly, right? But Amazon made a surprise move to demonstrate its good corporate citizenship this week by announcing that it will raise wages to $15 an hour for its entire U.S. workforce. That includes temp workers and part-timers, and the move will affect a total of an estimated 250,000 people nationwide. That also includes workers at Whole Foods, one of the company's newest acquisitions, along with the many seasonal workers that they hired to fulfill holiday orders. Unlike many of the city and statewide minimum wage hikes at the $15 level, Amazon's wage boost will be immediate, so no waiting. The move is one of the biggest single victories of the Fight for 15 movement so far, simply by virtue of the workforce's overall size and the power of Amazon to set wages and working conditions across the retail supply chain means that the move could have a ripple effect across the industry. It's also obviously a PR coup for a few people involved. Um, Bernie Sanders is actually getting a bit of good press because he had publicly denounced Amazon and CEO Jeff Bezos for paying workers poverty wages. And of course, Bezos himself is also using the move to burnish the company's public image in order to no doubt offset some of the public scrutiny it has faced over its dirty labor practices and corporate abuses. Amazon has also announced that it will pressure the federal government to raise the minimum wage above its current $7.25, though it has opted not to call for a $15 nationwide wage floor. And of course, there's still no union for U.S. workers at Amazon. Sanders, of course, uh, has called for a $15 nationwide minimum wage, uh, but more than that, he's not the main influence in Amazon's decision. It's really the fruits of a multi-year movement by organized labor and community advocates and workers themselves. Um, However, the public shaming does appear to have made an impact. On the other hand, the retail industry as a whole is facing wage pressures due to low overall unemployment, and the benefits of higher wages are in part offset by the fact that jobs are still being lost to increasing automation as well as outsourcing. Amazon, for its part, has been deploying robots to work alongside humans in many of its warehouses, and the next wave of AI could end up simply eliminating workers, even as those who do remain end up with bigger paychecks. What, you didn't think Amazon was just going to give its workers all that extra cash without getting anything back, did you? 
While Amazon workers got a raise this week after years of criticism of the company's low pay, the Fight for 15 marches on. Specifically, this week, Fight for 15 workers struck and rallied in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Illinois, focusing in on the demand for union representation. Arrested alongside protesting workers were candidates for office and sitting elected officials, underlining the connection between these strikes and the Fight for 15 and SEIU's efforts in the fast-approaching midterm elections. These strikes targeted states that are battlegrounds that have big governor's races this year, including our the man we love to hate, Scott Walker. And there are also states where Hillary Clinton struggled in the 2016 election. During the Michigan strikes, workers and protesters were struck by a truck in Flint, Michigan, while blocking a street. Six of them were injured. There were strikes as well in the UK this week, where Uber Eats and Deliveroo drivers joined McDonald's, Weatherspoons, and TGI Fridays workers on strike. These strikes were backed by the Labour Party's leadership, which has announced its plans for a £10 an hour minimum wage if elected. And while no election is imminent in the UK, the Conservative government is floundering in the wake of Brexit negotiations. For all of these workers, the minority strike tactic has the power to draw much more attention than a handful of striking workers normally get. They are aiming to shake up local political discussions as well as win fights on the shop floor. For the Fight for 15 to take up union rights in particular in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, which have become so-called right-to-work states in recent years and have seen repeated attacks on workers' rights in the public and private sector, is to challenge elected officials not just to raise wages, but to think creatively about rebuilding labor laws that have been dismantled. While union membership is at near-record lows, more and more workers have expressed interest in joining unions, and as labor law has been picked and picked away, most recently, of course, with the Janus decision, rebuilding it in a way that makes sense, even for those Uber Eats drivers, is a key challenge for those who claim to be progressive or even socialist running for office. And now we go to the Twin Cities, where the labor advocacy organization Satul has helped local authorities bring a criminal complaint charging Ricardo Batres and his construction firm American Contractors and Associates with labor trafficking, theft of public funds, and insurance fraud. It's an unusual case because it involves labor trafficking against migrant workers in the construction industry, and this is uh, an often hidden scourge that doesn't get a lot of public exposure, and criminal prosecutions are even rarer. But Satul managed to unearth this case and expose it for a fast-growing sector. But the case of American contractors was especially egregious and especially emblematic. During the summer of 2017, the company allegedly recruited about a dozen workers and deployed them to work local projects for 10 to 12 hour shifts about six days a week, often in dangerous conditions and ultimately left two workers severely injured. And they also shorted them regularly on wages and kept them living in squalid conditions. Though labor trafficking prosecutions are rare in this industry, advocates say the legal case illustrates the extreme levels of exploitation and abuse that go on every day in the Twin Cities and around the country, and they've spread across this region's low-wage construction industry due to the rapid growth of the real estate market, which has exacerbated the demand for cheap, unregulated labor. A major influx of immigrant workers has flooded into the Twin Cities recently to fill some of that demand, 
and that has led to the further degradation of labor conditions because these workers often work in the shadows, uh, many of them are undocumented, and there's always pressure for bosses to squeeze down wages in whatever way they can. The workers weren't just denied wages in this case. They were forced to live in substandard housing, systematically denied medical care, and threatened with deportation if they disobeyed the boss. When the workers tried to leave in protest of their poor working conditions, several were detained on immigration charges. Apparently, this was the boss's retaliation, reporting them to the immigration authorities. But eventually, some of the workers did come forward, despite the risk, and they worked with Satul and local authorities to press for criminal charges. Advocates say that American Contractors is just the tip of the iceberg, however, and massive wage theft and abuse of immigrant workers is endemic across the Twin Cities. You're probably familiar with sun-made raisins, the little red box with the woman in the sunbonnet on it. Well, the workers who run Sunmade's Kingsburg, California plant, including quite a few who were on strike 21 years ago at the same plant, struck for 15 days against the company's attempt to make them pay for health care benefits that used to be included in their pay package. This is, as we've discussed many times on the show in recent years, a common thread for strikes and lockouts, along with two-tier contracts. Companies maintain that they simply cannot afford to pay for health insurance anymore, and therefore workers get what amounts to a pay cut by being forced to pick up part of the tab that used to be included. It can sound normal to people on the outside. Of course workers should pay for their health insurance. But in fact, it's employers who are responsible for the existence of the employer-provided health insurance system that we have back when health insurance was a cheap perk they could offer to win good employees. And of course, they have fought and lobbied against single-payer health care for quite a while. In states like California, where single-payer health care is a live political issue in the state legislature, there would be an easy ways for companies to save on their health care costs. You know, back state-funded health care. Of course, they don't want to pay the taxes that would have to pay for that. In any case, the Sunmade workers, members of Teamsters Local 431, had voted down a previous contract that included a small raise and the workers' increased contribution to health care costs. The union notes that the health care plan is already a high-deductible plan, meaning that the workers already paid plenty of out-of-pocket costs for their care before the insurance even kicked in. The strike ended with a raise that works out to, according to the company, a 9% increase over the previous contract, though it still does include healthcare contributions. For a long time, worker-led cooperatives have been dismissed as some sort of weird hippie idea, but they're actually a pretty viable business model, and they've been gaining ground since the Occupy movement and right now, they're looking at a new financial landscape with an extra boost of help from Congress. I talked to Melissa Hoover of the Democracy at Work Institute about a new piece of legislation that would provide more access to financing and technical assistance for grassroots worker co-ops and what it might mean for this growing sector. Is there some specific tie-in between co-op development and creating just a more robust community economy? Um, especially when we think about what happens when, like, a huge business comes in and, and you know, the people who own businesses yeah. before become employees of this giant behemoth corporation. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting part of a broader anti-displacement strategy, but I don't think it's a silver bullet. Like, but when it's part of a broader stabilization strategy, that's where we start to really see results. So, like, um, 
you know, if there are rent supports or rezoning or um, other kinds of things that can help a business. What Basically, you know, you're an older business owner, your rent just went up, and you don't have anybody to take over your business. Like, that's not a hard decision to just say, you know, I'm just going to close it down. But if you're an older business owner, your rent went up, and you know that you can sell it to your employees, you might be willing to kind of, you know, try it. And in San Francisco, there's a, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development has this program called the Legacy Business Program, where they give a cash subsidy to legacy businesses, so businesses over 20 years old, you know, that play an important role in their community, get a cash subsidy, and then the landlord gets some kind of rent support to help keep that business there. So there's a financial incentive, and they just integrated employee ownership into their materials. So we started to see several businesses on the Legacy Business Register transition to employee ownership. One of them is the oldest gay bar in San Francisco, maybe in the country, a 50-year-old bar called The Stud. It's a community institution, you know, um, and their employees bought it from the owner. And, uh, you know, it faces displacement pressure still, but that kept the space open for years longer than it would have had. And now they have an opportunity to look at, you know, how do they thoughtfully relocate now that the retirement pressure isn't so high. So I think that they're like as part of a larger suite of options, yes, um, on its own. Lawmakers who, you know, want to combat gentrification will need to be supporting those worker co-ops with the same types of anti-gentrification policies that are helping to stab it off in general. So co-ops need to be protected um, just as much as any other retail business, I guess, is the key. Yeah, and co-ops are often women and minority-owned businesses, too. And so if there are special supports for those kinds of businesses, co-ops can take advantage of that. I mean, we do this all the time. We say something is valuable enough then we're going to make a special policy to protect it. Um, and we clearly like have missed the boat in a lot of cities on displacement of businesses. But I think policymakers are starting to like come around and go, yeah, we don't actually want to live in a monoculture where everybody makes $15 an hour or less, you know, at $15 an hour at best, right, if you're employed by these major corporations. So I think it's like a really interesting time actually for, for cities to be prioritizing this. To some extent, it's inherent in the structure that this is uh, empowering to workers by creating basically worker owners. But, you know, and I know that we're still in baby steps mode right now, but I mean, one day as co-ops become larger, um, they're going to start to take on the characteristics of any other large business. Um, And so that would lead to uh, various issues with labor, with ethical sourcing, um, and other questions of what makes, you know, a sound corporate citizen, I guess. So to the extent that we are operating in a capitalist society, what are ways that co-ops can maintain characteristics that distinguish them from sort of the most exploitative forms of business, even when they scale up? Right. Well, we don't, we don't actually have to guess at that question. We know the answer because we can see it in action. We can see it in cooperative home care associates, which invited the union in, and which advocates for policy that raises wages for all home care workers. Um, you can see it in equal exchange, which as they've grown, they've doubled down on their supply chain, being 100% ethical and sourced from producer co-ops in Latin America. So, I mean, I think there is actually a way to get, there's a sort of assumption like, oh, you get bigger, you're going to get badder. Um, you don't get more competitive, right? And the landscape is different. But I, I actually think there's a huge um, both as the supply chain and the market for values-based businesses, and that's what co-ops are tapping into. I mean, that's the power of scaling the ecosystem around them. People are like, oh, yeah, I want to buy from Equal Exchange because I know that they source their stuff. 
um, from farmers. I know that they pay a fair wage. Like that, that's those are real. I mean, I, I so you know, it's not to say that co-ops don't struggle and face competition, but um, I'm not actually worried about that because it's pretty hard coded in the in the DNA of the business, and they just do things differently. That was Melissa Hoover of the Democracy at Work Institute. The global aviation industry hit some major turbulence this week with a wave of protests around the world. Airport workers from Paris to Miami to Bangkok are mobilizing for fair wages and against corporate exploitation across the industry. The Airport Workers United campaign is calling out both big airlines and their service subcontractors over degrading labor conditions, uh, union busting, and the weakening of safety protections for workers and passengers. Ahead of the October 2nd Day of Action, which covered an estimated 36% of global air traffic, I spoke with Shoa Babu. He's a Denver airport wheelchair attendant, and he's trying to organize for better wages and a union at his workplace. When we work at the airport, we really work hard, but we're not getting like uh, the better wages. Like if everything is getting expensive, and we still get like if very minimum wage, and also we do not have any kind of insurance or any health benefit or any kind of benefit from our company or any vacation paid. And sometimes we're pushing people like we will share like 400 to 500 pounds and we do not have any kind of insurance from the company. So here is if anything happened to us when we work long time and we have any kind of health issue or anything, there is like we really get in trouble because we have to pay our personal insurance and we don't know how much our insurance coverage. So those for everything, we are really taking this action. Are you also working to directly organize a union, and um, how do those strategies fit together? So we want really uh, go inside the union. We work with the union because so we have we sure we can have like our own rights. But now like we we really we don't have like sometimes don't have any respect from like our company or management, and we. We'd like to go join union, but, you know, our company and our many of our employees, they are very, very afraid because if we are going, we support union and we are going to union and people are afraid if they can, if they get fired, if they can get fired from company, like any small issue or reason. So just like many people really, they're willing to join union, but they cannot join because they are afraid if they lose their job and they couldn't pay their bills. So I, we really like to join in union and we're taking this action because we thought like we don't have our own right, like we deserve more what we get. So this is really not enough for us, our wages and our, I don't have any kind of health benefit or any kind of insurance. So, Do you have a lot of colleagues who are immigrants as well? People have come from other places and are just trying to build new lives here? Yeah, uh, I have yeah lots of uh, co-worker. Mm, yeah, they are like immigrant. Even myself, I, I'm immigrant. Mm, so when I come, like yeah, I have different dream about like airport employee. Like yeah, for job, I thought it'd be a better paying, better opportunity, better benefit. But after I find out like <laughs> it's um, uh, better to you have like might be a outside job than to airport job because. Is less benefit, but people, everybody thought it might be where work airport, you get a better benefit, better stuff, but it's really not. 
talk about your other job. How do you handle that in addition to your airport job? So, yeah, I have another job. It's like I work for also Domino's uh, delivery pizza because, like, uh, that's why I said earlier I couldn't pay uh, my bills. It's my only one job because also I help into my family and myself. And I went to the college one time, but I couldn't and stuff, and I quit, and I come back to work, join job again full time. So it's kind of really very, very, very tough for me. And yeah, my other job I deliver like Domino's pizza. I also like do work like part time. I do uh, Uber. How would you like your conditions to change? Would you ultimately like just one job? How do you feel would work most for your life? Yeah, of course I like to do only one job. Um, I'm not planning to make like a billion dollar a month, but at least I want to make money like to pay my bills and have some saving and helping to my family also a bit. But the problem now, like where I work now in the airport, I don't make really enough money. Even I work really hard, like sometimes have lunchtime, like we work like eight and a half hours. So they deduct every 30 minutes, but mostly our employees we do not take a lunch break either because people have to run to make like money from, so they can pay their bills. If we have a better wages or better like benefit, like still now we have to pay our own insurance, like and we don't have any like vacation day off or anything. Like many of companies or many of places like you have like vacation like yearly this but we work for those companies, like most of in airports, they do not have any kind of system. Like even if you work 10 years, I have a people like who work for the same company for 10 years and they get like same wages and they don't have any kind of benefit, like any health insurance or they do not have any kind of like vacation paid. If they did not show up one day, that's one day salary is deducted from them. So if you are sick, the salary is gone for the day. If you one week sick, you have just lost one week money. So it's, it's very, very tough. Like you only just stay with one job because there's not available overtime. Um, so you just pay, get your basic and after you just have to pay your whole paycheck to pay your rent. And it's really very, very difficult. So you have to have like have multiple jobs so at least you can pay and you can save some money. But I really do not like to work those so much uh, camp or so much company or so much work. But I have no choice. And is there anything else you you want to add about um, you know why you're protesting or what you hope will come out of it? I hope like uh, it's gonna be changed. Might be take some time, but we are keep on trying uh, to change like about the airport employee like they get better wages and better job safety or like vacation paid so and we deserve like respect and dignity so hope we receive from those from our company so we're just working for that and like I said what earlier many of us like we are very very afraid like if we join we are very active and we get fired from company you know by any small reason I hope everything gonna be fine and we get what we do we deserve we not really get well paid or well treated by company so i hope it's gonna be huge changes that was shoa babu of denver airport talking about the airport workers day of action
You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that. My pick for this episode is Mia Tokumitsu's Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay, Self-Care and Social Retreat Under Neoliberalism in The Baffler. She examines a curious trend in our neoliberal modernity. It's the growing medicalization of culture and the pathologization of despair. She focuses particularly on one common phrase that is both excessively used and yet mysteriously vague. She traces the origins of this self-care idea to a society that encourages what she calls extravagant self-loathing. America's vast therapeutic brain trust, she writes, has steadily eradicated the language of solidarity and class consciousness, honed through collective struggle, and replaced it with exhortations to, quote, do what you love and, quote, live your best life. Both aphorisms imply that we're currently, what we're currently doing is just not enough. Given that we spend most of our waking hours in an alienated, desperate grind to obtain or maintain a life-sustaining job, blaming ourselves for every snag along the way, gospels of reassurance and self-care are precious cargo. But while the language of self-care is capitalism's artificial antidote to modern frustration and shame, Tokumitsu challenges us to rethink the notion. She says, neoliberal free markets chain us to a lifestyle that is inherently imbalanced and by definition unsustainable. And above all, in the workplace, at school, and on social media, the free market forces us to be cruel to ourselves and eventually to others. The culture of our economy compels people to measure their productivity in terms of so-called competitiveness, and this system shackles us to many perverse measures of human achievement that end up harming us more than they help. And capitalism manages to deliver both the disease and the cure in equal measure by dosing us continually with the language of self-care as a temporary salve. And as a short-term painkiller, the illusion of care does help keep us going on our miserable treadmill, barely until our next breakdown. She writes, quote, It is no coincidence that as we become more nervous, wellness and self-care have become mainstream industries. Over the last few decades, workplaces have become ever more oppressive, intensely tracking workers' bodies, demanding longer hours, weakening workers' bargaining rights, while also instituting wellness and mentoring programs on an ever greater scale, close quote. Yet the flip side of this self-care is self-blame. We're expected to resolve our own problems through self-determination, self-actualization, introspection, mindfulness, etc., etc. In other words, being our best selves, whatever that means. And if we're not our best selves, then that's another problem for which we can only blame our worst selves. She continues, quote, the location of all social problems on two individuals has now reached preposterous proportions. Now ordering avocado toast at brunch is the vice that justifiably closes someone out of the housing market forever. Millennials, as our guilt grows and as labor solidarity is destroyed, hyper-individualism is becoming both the source of all our mental health woes and our instant fix. The most ironically absurd case study of this is the mandatory wellness regime that many large corporations have imposed on their workers in order to force them to be uh, meditative, self-aware, and above all, happy, damn it, or else. And it plays out in our politics as well. 
The Clintons laid the template for liberal politicians to shamelessly destroy social welfare programs while cloaking them in the feel-good rhetoric of encouraging personal responsibility and self-sufficiency. But at the end of the day, so-called self-care turns out to be just one more way that capitalism destroys the self and degrades our very concept of care. It should be about acting on one's sense of humanity and empathy, but self-care is basically self-medicating. It seems to offer some form of healing, but it's just another way of perpetuating a deadly addiction. Tokumitsu ends with a call to arms for the people who are sick of the pop-cultural canard of care. She instead advocates for a culture of solidarity. There's a reason, she writes, why re-emergent words and phrases like solidarity, class consciousness, mass movement, organize, and collective struggle sound old-fashioned and in need of a good dusting off. They didn't simply fall out of vogue. They were aggressively obsolesced in our everyday lives by a variety of interests. Employers, corporations, hungrily eyeing public assets, determined to alienate us from each other in the interest of marketing our souls for our own benefit. So don't buy the hype. Don't sell your soul in exchange for neoliberal snake oil, no matter how tempting it sounds. If you look past these neoliberal delusions of grandeur, we can start to see how replacing the self with the social is really the first step to recovery from capitalism. This week, I wanted to talk about a piece at Viewpoint magazine from friend of the podcast, though not yet a guest, I guess we'll have to fix that, Asad Haider, called Socialists Think. The piece challenges the prevailing idea that, quote, socialists think any one thing. Assad writes, quote, when someone says socialists think that, they are telling you not to think. They are saying, we'll do the thinking for you, end quote. Yet, of course, socialists think many things, and we often contradict one another. There's a joke in here about the tendency of socialist groups to split, but I'll let you all make that. And then there's the idea that goes along with assuming that socialists think one thing, which is that it is then the job of socialists to tell workers what to think. Assad writes, quote, Furthermore, an embarrassing question comes up about the consciousness of socialist intellectuals. If the consciousness of the working class is determined by its social being, how do intellectuals acquire a socialist consciousness? This line of reasoning ends up representing intellectuals, as Rosanna Rosanda puts it, as, quote, miraculously freed from their social being and abstracted from their class, end one quote. In an account of factory investigations he conducted in France in the 1980s, Lazarus proposes that instead of talking about working-class consciousness, we should say, workers think. But what workers think is not just determined by the characteristics of production or the collective consciousness of an objectively constituted group. Instead, we have to find out what they think. We have to have the humility to ask and learn instead of going out knowing in advance what their consciousness should be, end quote. Those workers that Lazarus spoke with developed analyses through their workplace struggles of who counts as a worker, of what they wanted as workers, and of standing together in solidarity until their demands covered everyone. Shades of the West Virginia teacher strike staying out until they got raises for every state employee. They challenged the identity of immigrant as fundamentally separate from worker. It's too common these days for me to hear self-proclaimed socialists talking about what workers think. And even more depressingly common to hear that as some Trumpist reactionary position. There's nothing radical about assuming that workers are some caricatured white men in hard hats who hate everyone who aren't like them. Instead, Assad writes, quote, 
We can't possibly know what principles will be active in political situations ahead of time. To know about them in their specificity, we have to conduct investigations which begin from the recognition that workers think. This is an investigation which does not assume we know what workers think, but assigns priority to learning about their thought. A shocking premise, but one we can get behind here at Belabored. That is all we have time for today. Thanks, as always, to Descent for hosting us and Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. Thanks, too, to you for listening, and a special thanks to our sustaining members who give as little as $3 a month to keep us going. $5 a month gets you a sweet tote bag and our eternal gratitude, and $10 a month a subscription to the magazine as well as the tote bag. You can sign up now at descentmagazine.org slash belabored-membership. You can also make a one-time donation to Descent in our names, and if you don't have any cash to spare, you can write us reviews at iTunes and share the podcast with your friends. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you're a fast food striker in the US or UK, if you're an Amazon worker who just got a raise or a subcontractor who didn't, a sun-made striker or a worker owner at a cooperative. We want to hear from you. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.